In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, it's probably been a time in your life when you went to an amusement park. Raise your hand if you've ever been to an amusement park. Yeah, right. And um, you know the psychological effect that an amusement park can have on you, right? You're, you, you walk endless miles. You're sweating. You're, it's sweltering. Um, you, you stand in endless lines for hours on end. Uh, they, they move you from very cold settings into very hot settings in short order. It, it's almost like a low-grade form of torture, right? And, and you know that that psychological effect has had its intended effect when, when you actually are willing to, to sit down and plunk down 25 bucks for one of those people to do one of those portraits of you, right? You, like, like you really do that, and, and you really pay for it, right? And, and what do they call those self-portraits? Those are called caricatures, right? Caricature, caricature, right? It, it comes from the Italian word exaggerate. And caricature is, is that, that picture that it's, a, it's, it's somewhat recognizable, like I, I see part of you in it, but for the most part, it's an exaggeration or a distortion of you, right? Because how much can you do in four minutes? It's a caricature, and, and it's cute, and it's funny, and it's funny because it's, so, it's such a bad representation of you, even though you can kind of recognize yourself in it. Um, it it's been a long time since I've, I've, I've been had one of those, and it, it just so happens that there's a, a website called badcaricature.com that if you send the dude a picture of yourself in five bucks, he will send you a bad caricature. Well, I did it, and I told him I'd be preaching on this passage, and we're talking about caricatures, so I was wondering if he could rush it to me in anticipation, and, and he did it. And so here's the picture I sent him, and not so bad, huh? And, um, and then he sends me this note accompanying it, which is kind of his shtick. He said this, I'm sorry, Patrick, this doesn't really look like you. I have no idea what I'm doing. Please don't show this to your congregation. It'll ruin your sermon. I'm sorry. No refunds. So, so are you ready? Here, here, here's the big reveal. Right? So let's, let's do this side by side to see how he did. Yeah. Yeah. Russ, Russ told me earlier he was about to put a caption that said, nailed it. Um, but there it is, right? There's, there's a bad caricature. And you know what? It actually takes a lot of bit of art to do it poorly. And I, I think he nailed the poorly part. Okay, look, you're laughing. And you sh which are you laughing at more? I'm not sure. Um, here's the deal. Uh, that's cute. And we laugh. And it's bad. But, but that, what you just saw, it, it's, it's a metaphor for something to which you and I are all prone. It is a metaphor for something that is happening all around us in ways that we're probably not even sensible to. And it is something to which not only are we prone, but it is something that if we give ourselves to it, it's quite a danger. And it is entirely the opposite of what has been our focus during Lent. If you have not been with us before, we have been taking a very patient stroll through the most famous passage of love in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 13. And this morning, we're kind of taking our, the baton from last week. Last week, we talked about how love moves you past comparison. It moves you past envy and boasting. Those things you, you have in your rearview mirror when you want to be in love. This morning, I want to talk about the two words that Paul's bring up that that tells us that love moves beyond caricature. 
that there are two ways that you and I are prone to that are both distinct and yet they're inseparable that represent caricaturing. And the sooner we understand them as such, the sooner we can actually follow him in his footsteps about what it means to love. So that's what we're going to do. On this day, we're going to consider two words, both of which are an expression of caricature. And then we're going to ask ourselves this. How do we move from the instinctual move to caricature towards capturing the truth of things? So it goes fast. If I might ask you to stand very briefly, even you at home, we're going to read both from Philippians and then the appropriate passage from 1 Corinthians 13. And this I pray, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Love is not arrogant, nor is it rude. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. You can sit. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. Those are two words. I want to take them in reverse order. Rudeness. What does that mean? Why should we even care? Isn't you know rudeness almost a term of endearment these days? How rude, right? Um, when we think of rude, uh, maybe very superficial versions of it, uh, breaking wind at a funeral. Um, do I apologize for that? I'm not sure. Uh, there, there's one um, of being very disrespectful to our, our more seasoned people in the world. Uh, what does 3PO say when another protocol droid cusses him out? He goes, how rude, right? That's rudeness. What does it mean to be rude? Why is, why is Paul so exercised about rudeness that he, he wants to put it in his litany of things that you have to hate in order to love? The word there in the original language is the word askemone. And if you're listening carefully, in askemone, you hear the word schema. And schema kind of refers to form or outline in, in scientific parlance. A schema is a model by which you do certain levels of analysis. It's also where we get the word scheme. If you like football, then you know that the football players don't just go out there and try to stop. They enter into a defensive scheme. There's a plan. There's a form. There's an outline to it. That's what scheme means. When you hear the ah in front of schema, that means what's happening in Paul's mind is that you're taking that form, that outline, that identity, and you're ignoring it. You're disregarding it. And because you're disregarding the true nature of that thing, you act in ways contrary to its nature. That, my friends, is rudeness. Where you act in a certain way that is unbefitting the one unto whom you act in that way. You are not taking their fullness into consideration. You respond to them in that way. You are caricaturing them. You have turned them into an, either an exaggerated or flattened version of who they are. And you have found a way to do that to justify your treatment. Rudeness does that. And, and in some ways, it's, you know, the picture, that's funny. That's cute. But what Paul was talking about rudeness that form of caricaturing of another, it's not funny. It's 
it's demeaning, it's denigrating, it's, it's defaming, it's, look, you ridicule somebody, you, you bully somebody, you, you put them in a place in which they are flattened, where you're only taking one part of them into consideration, that's a caricature. And friends, it's, it's everywhere. And, and maybe we're even seeing more of it more often these days. There's a, you should, sometime if you go home and, and, and Google C.S. Lewis, bulverism, not culver, they don't serve hamburgers there, bulverism. And it's taken from a guy named John Bulver. And it's this idea that people will say these days, and in C.S. Lewis's days, you know, you're just saying that because you are fill in the blank, white, black, gay, straight, you know, rich, poor. Like, the only reason you're saying that is because of this. Like, therefore, any truth that you might have, you're automatically disqualified for or to be discredited simply because you reflect this particular marker. It's a caricature. When you refuse to hear where somebody's coming from just because they operate from a particular way or a particular marker, you, you don't listen to them, you don't take anything they have to say into consideration, that's a caricature. And that's everywhere. We're talking about it every day. And therefore, it's anything but funny. And, and when we're talking about caricaturing, it's, it's more than just hurting somebody or, or, or defaming them. It's actually denying something fundamental about them. And, and what am I by that? Is I, is I take a cue from something that James says that you heard in the New Testament reading. James warns of what is arguably the most powerful part of us, our mouths. And as he said there in James 3, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Brothers and sisters, this should not be, he says. When you caricature someone, what you're doing is denying that they are made in the image of God, that they reflect, no matter how poorly, the fact that they derive from the author of all things. And when you do so, you stain yourself and you set a fire to everything around you. That's caricaturing. That's rudeness. That's the danger. And therefore, avoiding rudeness, it, 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 it goes more than just trying to treat somebody as they'd want to be treated. Not to act rudely towards someone is actually to treat them in accordance with who they are as according to how God sees them. And when you don't treat someone according to how God sees them, you're incapable of loving them. Rudeness is therefore not just, you're just having a bad moment. You're actually having to blind yourself to something fundamental about them. Now, okay, it's at this point that uh, maybe some of you here or, or there or, or whatever are going, man, um, aren't you making a big deal about rudeness? Isn't it just sort of like a, a mere fault of character, uh, uh, a moment of weakness where we, we, you know, we speak harshly or, or demeaningly? You know, gosh, can, you, can we just move on and get on to more important matters? Friends, I want to I share with you a very real word that I think captures how, how grave and severe the idea of rudeness is. And it's a, 
It's a word picture that's in a song. And it's an excerpt from a song by Patty Griffin. It's called A Long Ride Home. And, and it's, it's, it's sung from the perspective of a person who's in a very particular car ride. Listen. Long black limousine Shiniest car I've ever seen Backseat is nice and clean She rides as quiet as a dream Someone dug a hole six long Feet in the ground I said goodbye to you and I threw my roses down. Ain't nothing left at all in the end of being proud with me riding in this car and you flying through them clouds. I've had some time to think about it and watch the sun sing like a song. I've had some time to think about you on the long ride home One day I took your tiny hand Put your finger in the wedding band Daddy gave you a piece of land Made ourselves the best of plans. Forty years go by with someone laying in your bed. Forty years of things you say you wish you'd never said. How hard would it have been to say some kinder words instead? I wonder as I stare at the sky turning red. I've had some time to think about. And I watch the sun sink like a stone. I've had some time to think about you all along. Haunting, right? It's a car ride home from the cemetery after a man buries his wife after four years. And he's haunted with regret because of words that he'd said over and over again repeatedly and, and he can't take them back. Forty years go by with someone laying in your bed, forty years of saying things you wished you'd never said. How hard would it have been to say some kinder words instead? Friends, um, what is that a song about? That, that is a song about failing, not just, not just speaking unkind words, but Speaking unkind words is the consequence of failing to see them in their fullness. It's a song of regret because of the way in which we caricature another. So, so caricaturing is both real, it's a path to regret, and it's the opposite of love because it's refusing to see them in their fullness. And that's why it matters. And that's why it shows up in Paul's litany of things that we need to be aware of when it comes to 
following in the footstep of Jesus who is the embodiment of love. Okay, look, uh, rudeness, though, does not come out of nowhere. Uh, it does not self-originate. Um, it derives from something else. It, it, is, it is downstream, if you will, uh, of something else that love is not. And that's the other word that we got to consider here. Because this other part that is not love is actually another form of caricaturing, but it's actually two forms in one simultaneously. Rudeness is the caricaturing of another. Arrogance is something else. Distinct, but related. And if I might begin that explanation by inviting you to consider a word picture. Take, take a deflated balloon and, and write or draw with a Sharpie whatever you want on it with as much precision and intricacy as you might want, right? Do that. And then blow it up. Maybe even draw a picture of yourself. <laughs> and then blow it up. And, and what do you get? This inflated view of whatever you drew on the balloon. The word there for arrogance in the original language is the idea that love does not puff itself up. It does not take this view of oneself that is greater and grander, far in excess of what is true of oneself. And so if you wanted to think of the, the relationship between arrogance and rudeness, arrogance is this inflated view of yourself that gets so big, so big, and so big until it erupts on another. Arrogance, rather, rudeness is the eruption of arrogance in someone else's presence. And therefore, rudeness begins first with an impression of oneself that is a caricature of oneself that you do of yourself. Because anytime that somebody speaks unkind words to another, what does that reveal about how they think of themselves? That they're greater. In 2 Chronicles 26, I know that book that you all do your morning devotionals in, it, it, it speaks of the King Uzziah. Uh, the Uzziah, uh, Allah Uzziah that you hear of spoken of in the year that Uzziah died in Isaiah 6, which we had in our Old Testament reading, right? Why, why even bring up Uzziah? Because in, in 2 Chronicles 26, uh, the, the chronicler uh, chronicles <laughs> of all the things that Uzziah had already accomplished. And in that moment, he was experiencing a great season of success. He, as a, as a king and protector of Israel, was able to protect Israel against the Amorites and the Philistines and the Arabians, and all that was going well. And, and God, it says, gives him success in that endeavor. And I'm going to read you part of that passage, and then I'll show you a slide that gets to the point of it. Uzziah prepared for all the army shields, spears, helmets, coats of mail, bows, and stones for slinging in Jerusalem. He made machines invented by the skillful men. So this is the military-industrial complex you hear I've spoken of later. Um, to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he was strong... He grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord, his God. God blesses him with strength. That strength leads to success. That success makes him strong inwardly, and that inward strength turns into pride. And that pride becomes a pretext for disobedience. 
He's so proud of himself, he feels justified in acting arrogantly toward others. Why is arrogance, this caricature of oneself, why is that a pretext for disobedience? Why does that become the, the groundwork for us to justify whatever disobedience? Um, when you caricature yourself, you're, you're doing something else at the same time. Because the more impressed you are with yourself, the less impressed you are with the Lord. Those two things go hand in hand. If you think that you must increase, then there will be a necessary sense in which you think God must decrease, in which he must answer to you, be accountable to you, rather than you to him. And therefore, that's how arrogance goes. The more you think well of yourself, the less you think of the Lord. And, and how that, that move, you know, it didn't start with you. That move goes all the way back to the garden. Because what happens there in Genesis 3? You know, there's a serpent. They offer a fruit. They eat. Bad things happen. Dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Everything falls apart. But that moment in Genesis 3, it's not about the serpent. It's not about the fruit. It's actually about something fundamental, a fundamental question for every single human on the earth, which comes down to this. Who is most qualified to lead you? To whom do you belong? In our world, a lot of people think that the greatest collision of cultures in our moment in Western civilization is all about sex or it's all about race. You know what? The greatest collision that happens in culture these days comes down to this question. Are you your own or are you not your own? How you answer that question splits out into everything else you think. And in that moment in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are saying, we got this. We are our own. And from that moment, folly and a fall. Martin Luther if you just look at the Ten Commandments, honoring your mother and father, keeping the Sabbath holy, not bearing false witness, not committing murder, Martin Luther reminded us all that for you to break any one of those other commandments, you have to first break the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Because every one of those other, two through ten, you had to break one first. You had to create some other god that you lived for, that therefore helped you to justify whatever else you think you might do. It becomes a pretext for disobedience when you engage in this arrogance that is a caricature of yourself and a caricature of the Lord simultaneously in real time. Love doesn't go there. Love is the opposite of that. Love is the absence of arrogance because love is fundamentally about humility. There is no love without humility. It requires it. And, and with a lot of help from Jonathan Edwards, who has a great book called Charity and Its Fruits, he, he's helped me to realize or in, in a chapter on this where he said, humility is the soil in which love grows. If you're not humble, you won't love because love is ultimately an act of self-forgetfulness. That's humility. But at the same time, and I got help from some of you horticulturalists in the family, ground cover, both 
is nourished by the soil, but by its own nature, it also nourishes the soil. So love grows in the soil of humility, but love also cultivates more humility in you. That's the nature of way love goes. Now, look, before, before we take all these distractions, we start to float away like some helium balloon. Oh, isn't that all wonderful? Let, let, me, let me see if I can, I can put the idea of, of love is not arrogant in a, in a very, uh, really striking frame. And, and, and to do so, I'm going to borrow um, a little help uh, from Ted Lasso, which apparently none of you have heard of. Uh, Ted Lasso's a show. Ted Lasso is a football coach from Wichita State who, for some reason, gets recruited to become a soccer coach in Great Britain. Football coach becomes soccer coach, never, never coached soccer a day in his life, and yet he becomes the coach of a top-level team. And as you might expect, he shows up in England, and they caricature him wildly. They call him everything that I can't repeat here on a Sunday morning. They refer to him in ways that even his mother would be shocked to hear. So he's caricatured in all sorts of places, and yet he rises above it. In this scene that I'm about to show you, it goes fast. He's in a pub, and he's playing darts with the ex-husband of the owner of the team he works for. And this owner, or rather this ex-husband of that owner, boy, he has ridiculed him, demeaned him, defamed him, caricatured him to all no end. And in this moment, you're going to hear where Tad Lasso, what he believes about that kind of life and what you miss out to live arrogantly and also how to respond to arrogance. Mate, what do I need to win? Two triple 20s and a bullseye. <laughs> Good luck. You know, Rupert, guys have underestimated me my entire life. And for years, I never understood why. It used to really bother me. But then one day, I was driving my little boy to school, and I saw this quote by Walt Whitman. It was painted on the wall there. It said, be curious, not judgmental. And I like that. So I get back in my car, and I'm driving to work. And all of a sudden, it hits me. All them fellas that used to belittle me, not a single one of them were curious. You know, they thought they had everything all figured out, and so they judged everything, and they judged everyone. And I realized that they're underestimating me. <sighs> Who I was had nothing to do with it. Because <laughs> if they were curious, they would ask questions. You know? Questions like, have you played a lot of darts, Ted? I would have answered, yes, sir. Every Sunday afternoon at a sports bar with my father from age 10 to I was 16 when he passed away. Barbecue sauce. Ted Lasso is like the book of Esther. God's name is never mentioned. Oh, but God is there. And in that scene, let me tell you why, how it relates to this moment about arrogance and how love is not arrogance. Throughout your life, you're going to be tempted to arrogance and you're also going to encounter it. And in those 82 seconds, you saw a reference to both. 
the ex-husband, the one who calls him an idiot, what does he reflect? He reflects an arrogance and an adversary where he caricatures Ted, and for him to do that, he has to be full of his own self. And in being full of his own self, he's not curious at all about the true identity of Ted. And in not being curious, what does he do? He underestimates him. That's caricaturing. If you're not curious about who they are, if you write them off because they're a Republican or a Democrat or a black person or a white person or a gay person or a straight person, if you write them off, you're underestimating them. You're not curious about them. And you belittle. And you flatten. And you refuse to grasp them. That is where arrogance is writ large. And when you are tempted to it, underestimating somebody is, is the embodiment of the arrogance that leads to rudeness. But you're also going to encounter arrogance. And if God is small to you, if you have caricatured God into something that is small, then you really will care if somebody belittles you. It really will matter. Whether you win or lose the dart game, whether people call you something in public or not, if God is small, if you caricature God, you really will care what other people think. Oh, I know what it's like to do this. Love is not arrogant. And love trusts in one who is greater than anybody else that might be arrogant unto you. And that all sounds so wonderful. But we really have to ask this last question. How is that even possible? Because it's easier said than done, and I know that. How do we do that? Friends, in that line from the Patty Griffin song, 40 years go by with someone laying in your bed, 40 years of saying things you wish you'd never said, how hard would it have been to say some kinder words instead? I wonder as I stare up at the sky, I'll turn in red. What is that a song about? That's a song about regret. And for those of us who hear it, what is its, what is its help to us in addition to the fact that it's a poignant song of beauty, it's out to warn us about the regrets that we might later have, that we might avoid doing the things that we regret later. And you know what? That's a powerful motivation. And, and it, it's not even without biblical warrant. There are pretty, plenty of moments in the Proverbs in which it warns you of a future that if you don't act in a certain way now, you're going to reap another whirlwind later. Jesus himself says, what does it matter if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul, he's talking about a future thing in which you don't want to regret that. But friends, that's a motivation. It's a powerful motivation. It's even a biblical motivation. But it's not the primary motivation to love. Because when you think about just trying to live a life to avoid regret, what is that mostly? It's a self-centered motive. I don't want to hurt you because I don't want to hurt later. It's about you again. So what should be the primary motivation that we might not be rude because we would not be arrogant? How do we move from caricaturing to capturing? How do we move from making a distorted image of something into building something that's a very portrait, a very the embodiment of them? In Hebrews chapter 1, the author says this, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The New Testament does not speak of Jesus as merely one who had a consciousness of God or who had a reverence for God. It speaks of him as the one who was the exact imprint of God. When Philip asks Jesus in John chapter 14, show us the Father, and Jesus says, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Friends, you can try to avoid regret all you want, and that's fine. You let it serve you for a while. It won't serve you forever, and it won't serve you as much as believing that there is one who is the very embodiment of God that you and I must study. Because when they brought the children to Jesus, they thought of the children as a nuisance. They flattened them. And Jesus says, are you kidding me? Let the children come to me. When Jesus approaches Matthew, the tax collector, to be one of his disciples, he doesn't see him only as a tax collector. When he meets the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he doesn't see her only as a serial monogamist. When the prostitute comes and anoints his feet with her hair, he doesn't see her only as a prostitute. And when Peter denies him, the one who spoke with great bravado for him, Jesus doesn't see him only as a denier. And when he looks at you, and when he looks at me, we're both sinners, but he doesn't see us only as sinners. And we know that. Because he so humbly denied himself that he might die for sinners that we might come and belong to him and learn how to love. The gospel is this. Jesus refused to caricature you and refused to think too highly of himself and too lowly of his Father such that in living truthfully with a clear portrait of who we are in our fullness and of him and his Father, we are delivered. And that's why I think the application of this passage is this. Friends, study the person of Jesus. I know we say around here, read your Bible, pray your Bible, sing the songs. Oh, that's great. But this is a more targeted application. Study the person of Jesus. And if I might get right up in your business as I'm getting right up in mine, what does it mean to study? It means to give time to it and reflection to it and to consult other voices to supplement your understanding of it. I'm about to get in your face right now by reminding Let me show you this clip, this, this slide. If you've watched any of those shows in their entirety, that's how many hours you've given to it. That number of hours for any number of things. And you've studied those characters. You've studied those narrative arcs. You've studied those character lines. And what you've done is you've invested time in that. You've invested reflection upon it. And you've consulted other voices to supplement your understanding of it. That's study. Friends, imagine if you gave 10% of that time to studying the person of Jesus. Because look, you will have regrets. 
And when you face them, Wanda won't be there. And you will have sins. And when you get there and they face you, Iron Man won't be there. But Jesus will. By his spirit, he will welcome you with open arms and eyes and will say, I know. I died for enemies, even you. If you and I would move from caricaturing others, ourselves, and the Lord to capturing a true portrait of each, you and I have to study the person of Jesus who did not do that. Study him that your love might move beyond caricature. Let's pray. Let it be unto us as you have said. Amen.